Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everybody. Well, uh, first off, what I'm only 24 hours into your city and country, and I'm already in love. It's one of those cities. I had this experience when I was uh, at Cape Town a while back. You, you get off the plane and you start to ask Jesus to call you there, and he doesn't. <laughs> and it's kind of frustrating. You're like, so I'm, nobody knows where Portland is. So just think West Coast of America, San Francisco, go north to all the liberals and the rain and the good coffee, and that's where I live. So the weather is just so horrible. So this is not winter. Can I just say that? Whatever this is, it's not winter. This is like, it's something else. But it's so great to be here, and uh, I'm a little bitter having to follow Mark Sayers. That was just phenomenal. And Mark, we're just so grateful your, um, your mind, your heart, your work has played such a key role in our church back home and in a bunch of my friends who lead other churches in similar kind of post-Christian, secular, pluralistic places. So we're so grateful for you. And it really is a joy. I'm not sure why it's me up here, but I'm, I said yes to the offer. I'm happy to be here. Um, if, you turn a, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 28. And you all know this, but I just, um, I am a bit of a Bible teacher that's in my the marrow of my bones, so I, I love to open it and read this, or for most of us, reread it, because I actually have been reading this my whole life and had a, a bit of an epiphany around this um, teaching of Jesus or this little story a few years ago. Matthew chapter 28, we'll just start here. Verse 16, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, and there's that great little line, but some doubted. Those were all the kind of Melbourne, Portland people. <laughs> They're like, I'm not really sure what I think, you know. He's levitating, just believe, all right? <laughs> then, Jesus, <laughs> then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What a great line. It's, um, I love N.T. Wright's little, That's how you say Jesus is Lord in the first person. Great little thing. And then here's the line we all know um, or think we know. 19, therefore, in light of this reality that Jesus is back from the dead and he's Lord of everything there is, from Melbourne to Portland, time, space, and all of it. In light of that, here's our marching orders. Go and make disciples, or I think a better word is apprentices of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, And then that beautiful haunting line, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, I want to talk about this for a little bit, but first I just want to um, do my best pale imitation of a Mark Sayers kind of reading of our cultural moment. I just want to, every generation of leaders, this is our marching orders, right? So it's very, like, you know this, you've read this, you've reread this. This is like our, if there's a job description, it's the passage that we just read, the end of Matthew 28. Go, make disciples, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That, that's it. That's our marching orders. But every generation, every crop of leaders has to ask, how do we do this in our time and our place? And while I'm not from Melbourne or even from Australia, there is a ton of not only difference but also similarity between my time and place and your time and place. Walking around Melbourne feels a lot, or Melbourne, as I thought it was called. Apparently I was wrong. Um, You slur everything. You know that. It's like you sound really cool and really lazy at the same time. (laughs) I'm in Australia. I can make fun of you, right? Isn't that, that's how you express love. So clearly I love you, you know, but please do not express your love back to me. I'm, I'm from Portland and I'm sensitive and emo. So, um, so, 
we have to ask this question, how do we do this in our city, in our time, in our place? So first, um, Sam, how do I put the slide up? Do I just click this? Ah, boom. So um, this, is, this is my little, I think we're living at a fascinating cultural moment. I've just been thinking this through. We're living in the middle of like four cross currents. The first, of course, is the post-Christian culture, and I won't say a ton about this because Mark has done so much great work here. One of the most helpful ideas out of Mark's work lately is the difference between a pre-Christian, a Christian, or Christianized, and a post-Christian culture. And post-Christian culture, which I think is true basically of the West in general, or at least the progressive side of the West, whether you're in a Melbourne or a Portland or a Seattle or a New York or a London or a Cape Town, is a reaction against Christian culture. I would prefer the language of Christianized culture because there's never a, it's always a mixed bag. And so you have this like reactionary kind of, even in a city like mine where like nobody really knows Christians, it's like Christians are kind of like unicorns. You meet, somebody meets one, like, wait, really? You're, at, you're one of those? Um, like, I didn't know you were still around. It's a thing. And, but still, there's this like latent kind of hostility and anger on one side, yet at the same time, so much of the progressive vision or the liberal vision is essentially Christianity minus Christ, you know? So, so many of the, one of the, the fascinating things that we're seeing right now in culture is the left in particular is a moral vision. There's just a bit of a difference of like how to define what morality is, but there's no longer an authority. And so there's an appeal to the morality of sexuality or tolerance or immigration or open borders, but there's no authority anymore other than just personal whims and desire and all of that. So there's all this like all this um, just tension and chaos around that. But you have this moment where the church is no longer the center of gravity, that's for sure. The church is now on the margins of society. And what that means in a church context is there's such a gravitational pull. You just have money for one, and so you have everybody out drinking good coffee and eating good food. And again, why go to church when you can podcast and go out to brunch and have avocado toast, or, or you call it avo toast or whatever, right? Don't you call it avo? Avo, Avo, you don't pronounce anything right. What is wrong, <laughs> you know? Um, so why, go, why, when you can just go out and have a mimosa and Avo toast and a good cup of coffee and cycle around town, like the gravitational pull is so hard. I, I remember um, I was leading this college ministry maybe 15 years ago, like the late 90s, early 2000s were, was such a different cultural moment. And basically, all you had to do to be like on the cusp of where the church was was just like have candles, turn down the lights, like play secular music before church or whatever, write your own worship song, like wear jeans and talk normal. And you were just like, everybody was like, oh my gosh, you are changing the world. (laughs) Now nobody even cares. They can't, they don't even want to, you can do all of that and do it better than you've ever, and they don't even want to come to church because there's a football game on, or, you know, with us a new brunch spot open in town, or I'm not really in the mood, or I'll podcast it later. Like, the gravitational pull to just, especially if you're, not all of you are from Melbourne, but especially if you're in a Melbourne or Portland, or a city that is just this cornucopia of hedonism and food and drink and beer and hiking and the outdoors and all, like, there's so much to do. So you just have this fascinating moment where there's this, like, hangover from our Christianized past where we want it, we want some of the values of it, but yet the gravitational pull to the city is so strong. Secondly, you just have modern society as a whole, which as Mark said is there are bits and pieces of it that are toxic. I don't know if you've read Try by Sebastian Junger 
who's a journalist. He did that famous documentary on the Afghan war, Restrepo. It's a little book tribe. You can read it in one sitting. It's horribly depressing, but it has some, some great material in there. But he opens this book with all these quotes from Benjamin Franklin and a few other French writers about early American history, which I know is, forgive me for my colonization right there of you, but um, my imperialistic impulse in my heart. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, he opens with this fascinating phenomenon. I'm curious if the same thing happened here, but in early American history where you had all of these white English colonists coming over on the boat who at the time are the peak of Western civilization. And you have all of these stories of quite a few of them running off, leaving the colony to join the indigenous people, who are essentially living the way people did in the Stone Age. But you don't have one... He has all these quotes from Benjamin Franklin and all these others about this phenomenon. But you don't have one story on record of any of the indigenous people of their own free will and volition coming to live with the colonists. And he just makes this point that, and that's like 300 years ago, there's something about modern society, as great as it is for all of our technology and money and good coffee, that is toxic in particular at a soul level. That's 300 years ago. This is way before Steve Jobs ever destroyed the world. So <laughs> 2007, as we all know, Thomas Friedman, if you've read his latest book, The Age of Acceleration, basically makes the case that 2007 will be a 1440 kind of moment. What Gutenberg was to the Western world, the way it launched the Reformation, the Enlightenment, changed Europe, changed the world, that um, the smartphone, 2007, is exactly that. And we're living in the middle of it, but it's so disorienting that often we don't realize. In the last decade, the smartphone in particular has fundamentally reshaped our humanity. Like, we're all part cyborg now. We're all living in a sci-fi film. Her is like the new reality, if you've seen that. So this is a new moment, and I honestly think there's more danger from our iPhone than there is from our post-Christian culture. I honestly think we have a greater challenge on our hands with um, digital capitalism than we do with all of the secularism, and because that, and the, it, it, that will self-implode at some point. I honestly think the progressive vision that so many of our cities are living, there's a shelf life to it. It's not sustainable for human flourishing, but addiction tends to do well over the long haul. And so I honestly think that we have a greater danger. You can have people that are not swayed by secularism, not swayed by the progressive vision on sexuality, this, that, or the other, who basically are going to lose their prayer life, lose their um, sense of the Holy Spirit through addiction to their phone. Through, they're going to lose the ability to live in community through an inability to actually be in the same room with people. I don't know if you read Andrew Sullivan had that great little essay, I Used to Be a Human Being which is basically kind of a manifesto against digital society, opens with him checking his iPhone into a box for a retreat center. He's a progressive Catholic, so he has this interesting faith kind of... It's not a faith article, but he kind of has this weave through it. He has this fascinating paragraph. I'm sorry, I don't have this on a slide for you, so let me just read this to you. Modernity, he writes, slowly weakened spirituality by design and by accident in favor of commerce. So think about the way that capitalism has reshaped that. It downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. So think of even like the difference between how I imagine church, you know, a few hundred years ago, the quiet, or even how a lot of Catholic tradition is now versus the ruckus of a rock band and noise and lights and lasers and all of that. I'm sure you have that at Red Church. I can't wait for the smoke machine when I get up. <laughs> but then listen to this. Sorry, if you have a smoke machine, that... Actually, I do judge you, but I know it's wrong, if that makes you feel <laughs> any better. Okay. <laughs> um, so then he says this. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproven the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism 
has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. And then here's this haunting line. If churches, this is not an article on churches, it's from the New York Times. If churches came to realize that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a dizzled, frazzled digital generation. I think that there's some, that dude's not a pastor, he's not even an article to church leaders, and I think that one line is so haunting. Once again, some of the greatest dangers are the ones that you're blind and oblivious to. And once again, I have a phone, I don't mean this in some Luddite return to utopia, I just mean, I think the phone has all sorts of, and Wi-Fi in the digital age, all sorts of implications for our humanity, and particularly for our spirituality. Because at the center of life with God are the spiritual disciplines, all of which require um, an ability to focus for a long period of time, focus your mind, and even more, like touch a deep soul-level part of your being to the reality of God. In a world where all silence and solitude is pretty much gone, even when you're alone, you're not alone anymore. When distraction is the new normal, addiction is the new normal, all sorts of implications for prayer, for Sabbath, for silence and solitude, for relationships, um, social media, obviously the rise of insecurity and isolation, discontentment is the new normal, even mental health, like all of this stuff. And I don't mean this in some kind of just a dower, it's the end of the world moment. I just say this is the moment we're living in. My, middle, my son, my oldest son is 11, started middle school yesterday. So the night before I left, you know, I went out with him, we had a great chat, and you had that uncomfortable dad like, all right, you're about to, you're going to have your first wet dream soon, and so let's talk through this. Some of you don't have that experience yet, and it, it wasn't very fun, but he's a great kid. But I'm just realizing he's in a world, I just had to tell him, you, he hasn't been exposed to pornography yet. You will be exposed to pornography in the next two weeks, like I guarantee you, because all of his friends got phones over the summer for middle school. So these kids are being sent to middle school, and it's not like I have to go over. When I was a kid, in order to be exposed to porn, you had to like sneak out of the house, and I was like homeschooled, like, I couldn't do that anyway. Um, <laughs> and ride your bike down to like 7-Eleven, I lived in suburbia, so that was like five miles away in America, and you had to like go in and somehow like go to the back, and there was a magazine rack that was all covered like by black plastic. You had to get one, then you had to convince the person to sell it to you with money that you didn't have, and, like, and then you had to go home and you had to hide it. Now all you have to do is like slide your thumb a half an inch on your Instagram filter to the search bar, and boom, it's right there for you. And, and it's no longer, even five years ago, when Jude had, had to go over to a friend's house who had irresponsible parents who would go to bed and leave the laptop open in the living room or the den or whatever, and his friend could sneak in, hey, let's look at this. Now it's the phone at the cafeteria, on the bus, like it's just everywhere. All that to say, this is the new normal. This is the moment that we're living into, that our children even are living into. Third is, um, we're the first adult generation that is the byproduct, I'm just here to encourage you, um, the, the, <laughs> the, the byproduct of divorce. So once again, I can't read Australian culture. My guess is it would be somewhat similar to American culture here. You have the World War II generation, where it was really stable, um, but yet there's a kind of a mythic, like the greatest generation thing, at least in America. Yet actually, all the parenting literature says it was a bit of a breakdown, it was a bit of a failure. These are mostly vets that were fathers, and the fathers were incredibly absent. And emotionally, they would like work, they were faithful to their wife, they'd bring home a paycheck, buy a house in suburbia, but most of them were not present emotionally as fathers. So you have a whole generation moment there, then you have the baby boomer generation that basically is reacting against that. So the baby boomer generation, at least on the west coast of America, I think 
hippies. That's my dad's generation. Basically, a lot of them never grew up. And so there's the sexual revelation, revolution, there's a rebellion against mom and dad and suburban kind of middle class life. There's this anger, this wanderlust, all of that. Then now you have millennials, my generation, that's the third one down, and the baby boomers started to all, marriage started to implode out of the sexual revolution. Families started to break down. So now I'm, the, I'm like the oldest, I'm born in 80, which is usually the first year for millennials. So I'm, I'm the upper tier of that. But now, especially 10 years below me, but even my age, we're now the first adult generation where 64% of my church comes from a broken home. So just think about that. It's not, there's always been divorce and always been just unhealthy families, but 64%. And a lot of these kids grew up in a church. This is like, you know, a lot of these are second, third generation Christians. So that's the new normal. So what we're discovering is in a lot, we have all these people that are, Portland's the, one of the most overeducated cities in America because it's just a great city and it's a little bit cheaper than in New York or San Francisco. So all these people have a master's degree from whatever and move and are you know, making coffee or whatever and just living in our city. So it's starting to change, but you have this phenomenon. Our church is full of 20-something and 30-something professionals because you have to make a decent amount of money to live in the city. Most of them have good jobs. They will be 25, 30 years old, well-educated, making good money, doing well in their career, but emotionally, they're basically 12 years old still like dealing with interpersonal conflict. They're most of them, most of them have either father wounds or mother wounds. Uh, now all of our millennials are starting to have kids, and I can say this because they're not here. It is a disaster. We're trying to figure out how to teach millennials how to parent. Most of them have no clue. They're all overreacting against their parents, and these children are just like terrifying, let me tell you. Some of the young children are... I think I shouldn't say this out loud. I'm sorry. But there's a, there's a whole moment where basic just stuff that a good dad would teach you or a good mom would teach you is almost gone. And I'm talking people that are smart, making 100 grand a year, in a good career, they're on track, they're in medical school, in residency or whatever. But the, by, the breakdown of divorce, the breakdown of the family has just caused a ripple effect through our society and even through our Christian society. Then finally, um, while we're on this encouraging note, you, we're also the first adult generation that is the byproduct of the megachurch. Now let me nuance this because I know the megachurch is a distinctly American phenomenon. I grew up in it, so my dad is a pastor, great man was on staff at one of the first megachurches in America in Silicon Valley, what's now Silicon Valley. So at the time, when he was there on staff in the late 70s, there were only 10 churches over 2,000 people in all of the United States of America. Um, now there's like, I think, 1,200 new churches hit that every single year or something like that. And I know that's a distinctly American phenomenon. Um, but you do have at least one megachurch here that some people know about. Um, so <laughs> there is some of it here as well. But I think megachurch is best described not so much as a number of 2,000 or up or whatever, but as a way of doing church. And so when I think about megachurch, I think about three kind of primary markers. One is it's personality-driven, so it's so-and-so's church, fill in the name of the lead pastor. Two, it's Sunday-centric, meaning when people talk about church, what they talk about is the Sunday gathering. And we have a Sunday gathering. I'm not like a deconstructionist. I went through that phase and realized... Well, first off, I want a job, so I should do a Sunday. Um, no, that's the cynical, honest answer. Um, 
but, uh, but it's Sunday-centric in the sense of the church is all built around Sunday. When people are using their gifts, what they actually mean is they're volunteering to make Sunday happen. Like, I don't think their spiritual gift is like to park cars. I don't think that's a New Testament spiritual gift. I think that's just serving, that's, which is great. I'm all for that. I don't think that's like the pinnacle. You know that guy's actually CEO. He can do more than that. Um, uh, so, so personality-driven Secondly, Sunday-centric, and, and third would be consumer-oriented programming. That's, that's not my language. I forget where I got that from. But consumer-oriented programming is a very, this sounds cynical, but it's just a way of saying you, you give people what they want. So in an American context, it would look like a young mom's group and a uh, you know, small group for young married couples who all like cricket and live in, like, in this kind of coffee. Like It's like subgroup, 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 like attract like to get people around people where they feel comfortable. Again, not all of that is bad. Some of it is just a best chance at community. My point is, the, mer- the megachurch has, has, even if you don't live, even if your church is 70 people, a lot of churches still fit that rubric because it has had such a great influence on the world. So I even think, and this is not a Hillsong bash at all, but I think their influence is so global and so interesting. Now I'm seeing all of these churches that are like 100, 150 people that are set up like they're this 10,000-person church, and they have a smoke machine and a light, and it's just the same thing but really bad with not very many people. And, and, it's, and, and, and I know that is, that's kind of harsh, and I'm sorry, but I do think there's an interesting moment where there's almost like one model of church throughout the West, and this is what, what you were part of in the 90s and the 80s, and the early 2000s was an attempt to like, let's, let's talk about some other models, some other ways of doing church. Unfortunately, some of them were just not doing church anymore, so that's not as helpful. But um, I do think that now we're living with the first adult generation that is the byproduct of the mega, whether it is an actual, like, you know, what I grew up in, thousands of people, or it's a church of 200 people, but it's done that way. And I think there are some great things about the megachurch. A lot of people in America in particular come to faith through it. There's some amazing justice stuff that you can do with 5,000 people that you just can't do with 50 or whatever. So I think there's, I'm a big believer in like the ecosystem. There's not one way to do church. There are all sorts of ways. Every way has pros and cons. And I think there are some huge cons to the mega. I think there's some huge pros. And same for my model, same for a house church model. I think we need all in the kind of ecosystem of the kingdom. That said, I think it's a fair critique to say that as a general rule, the megachurch didn't do a great job of raising disciples of Jesus and did a better job at kind of mass evangelism and some good moral upkeep. But I think a lot of megachurches, my guess is most of the time, um, inadvertently, ended up raising more what Christian Smith, you know, called moralistic therapeutic deists, which I think, that's te- I think that study's 10 years old now. And that was his kind of summary of basically most millennials. I think, was that just in America that he did that survey? But I think it's pretty true, you know. And he, basically he's saying when people say Christian, they're, like, that doesn't mean disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Moralistic, semi-moral, theistic. Yeah, there's a God. He's not super involved in my life unless if I need something. Um, that's the deism kind of thing and therapeutic, like it's about me and my life and doing better. And again, there's bits and pieces of truth in that. But all, what that leaves us with is like, so there's Bridgetown's church, the name of the church that I lead. So there's your red church, there's Bridgetown, there's, I'm sitting there and like an average coffee for me, I'm with somebody who is most of the time in my city, educated, making money, doing fairly well, but whereas when I'm with my dad's generation, so I was on staff at the Suburban Mega Church, a lot of people more conservative, a lot of people kind of 40, 50 and up. With those people, I could just kind of assume they get up in the morning and they read their Bible, 
They're, they're like the Bible is not a stumbling block to their faith. It's like a Bible for them. They know how to pray. They come to church most Sundays. They're probably giving or even tithing. They probably do like sponsor a child or something. They know how to have a semi-decent marriage. There's just all sorts of assumptions. Like when I meet your parents, you know, who are here somewhere. I, there's just assumptions I can make that may or may not be right, but as a general rule. Now when I'm with a 27-year-old, whatever, I can just assume They don't read their Bible on any kind of a regular basis. If they do, they have so many questions, it's almost an obstacle to faith at times. Prayer, they like the idea of prayer, but Instagram is a little bit more compelling, and it's hard to just even focus long enough to pray. Church is like, most of our church is about every third Sunday is like average attendance for most people at our church, and we like are pushing it and really pulling hard for that. Um, like I can just assume this person is in some way like addicted to their phone, addicted to technology. They're living with some kind of a father wound or mother wound or some kind of like relational dysfunction from their family of origin. They probably are way like left of what some of the Bible is teaching around sexuality. Again, that's my context. Might be right for you. And they might not even realize what it means to follow Jesus. Their paradigm might be more like believe and go to church and be a you know kind of. I can just make the like the assumptions now are radically different than what they were even 10, 15, 20 years ago with the generation before. Again, that sounds really negative. So I'm just here all the way from America to encourage you, all right? (laughs) But I do think there's a lot of positive because I think we're coming to the end of the deconstructions phrase, and I love that framework. And I think there's there's a lot of... That doesn't lead anywhere. So that that doesn't lead anywhere. And, um, And so now we're at this new key moment. Now, back to Matthew 28. What we have to figure out is how to make disciples of Jesus in this kind of a cultural moment. And Mark or yourself could do a better job of like your commentary on that. But how, how, do we make, how do we do Matthew 28, go and do all of that, in this kind of a time, in this kind of a place? Um, and just two things that I want you to notice about, you know, just a really short little couple thoughts on Matthew 28. So you have, you have this kind of meta command, go and make disciples, or I think a better language is apprentices, Um, of all nations, and then depending on how you interpret Jesus' command here, most scholars argue that the next two lines are like subcategories. So what does that mean to go out and make apprentices of all nations? Well, there are two things there, or two subcategories. First is baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So my, and there's, there's room for debate here. My interpretation of this is essentially what we would call evangelism. So that's kind of job one, is to baptize people in, full immersion into, of mind and body into the reality of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, I love Willard's little thing on what this means is make uh, disciples, not converts, and how a lot of the Western church did the exact opposite, made converts, not disciples of Jesus. So the invitation wasn't to come and follow, take up your cross and follow Jesus. It was come... Like, I remember sitting through this one well-known preacher, and the whole, like, altar call was, say yes to Jesus. Like, say yes. What does that even mean? Like, you know, it was like, and then it was like, if you want a new start in life, then say yes in Jesus. I'm like, who doesn't want it? I want a new start in life, and I've been following Jesus my whole life. You know, like, it's that kind of, it's a little bit different than I think the come, take up your cross, follow me. And, um, you know, obviously, Willard would use that little framework that some people like, others don't like of Christian versus disciple. Christian, of course, is not actually a word that's barely used in the New Testament, not by followers of Jesus. And I think it's lost so much of its meaning over the years. Even the last couple of months, it's in the the American news media. It's lumped in, like you see that little trifecta of white Christian male 
when they're writing about white supremacy. And I'm like, wait, Jesus was Jewish. You can't do that. You know, something, at, when white supremacists are Christians, at some point you lost the plot line just a little bit because he was Jewish and he spent time in Africa um, and was an immigrant. So there's all, there's all sorts of things there. But I think it's lost so much of its meaning. And again, I don't know what it means here. In America, a Christian, because there is, in middle America, not where I live, but there is more of a um, cultural Christianity. It's gone where I'm at. But um, Christian generally just means kind of a semi-orthodox, you know, historic, Judeo-Christian belief system, a semi-moral lifestyle, and you know, time-to-time church attendance. Of course, all of that's even disappearing with the white Christian or male you know, white supremacist or whatever. All that to say, Willard would say, the great need of the hour is for Christians to become disciples. And the reality is that in this kind of a culture, if you're in a Melbourne or Portland or wherever, or in Australia, like Christians just can't make it. Like it's just too corrosive. The soil is too corrosive. The air is too toxic. Unless if like there's a rigorous, like I actually follow Jesus and I'm willing to take up my cross and do that. So there's a beauty in that. I think it actually, cultural Christianity there's some boons about it, but man, it's hard to actually thrive, have a church that is healthy and thriving in that kind of a moment. So our first job, of course, is just, is what, if you want to call that evangelism or baptizing in the name of the Father, the main thing I want to focus on, though, is that second job is teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I have this, this really vivid memory of about three years ago. I was reading this passage, and I had like an epiphany. I've read this passage my whole life, like so have you. You know it backwards and forwards. But I had this epiphany moment when I realized, oh my gosh, I don't actually do this. I, um, I'm a teacher. Like if you think about the kind of Ephesians 4:11 framework, I identify with the teacher kind of more than anything. I, my uh, like philosophy of teaching back home is exegetical. So we're in Matthew right now, and we literally start in chapter 1, verse 1, and I exegete line by line in the Greek and back. Like that's my gig. And I realized, oh, I don't... I'm a teacher. I don't actually do this. I teach people everything that Jesus commanded them. I'm pretty good at that, I think, or okay at that. But that's not actually what he says. He says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's very different. So like in business parlance, it's the difference between the what and the how. Or uh, Simon Sinek, a big thing over here too. His little framework of, you know, why, what, how. So all this great shirt, all this great talk, especially for millennial leaders about, we need to talk more about the why behind the Bible and the why behind the gospel. Great. I, I think I even do that pretty good. I talk about the why, definitely talk about the what. This is what the Bible says. This is what Paul means here or whatever. I rarely, uh, this is changing, but rarely talk about the how, which is why I think so, I think it's much easier to talk about the why even and the what than the how. It's much easier to say, exegete Philippians 4. This is what Paul is saying about anxiety, and don't do it this week, than it is to actually teach somebody how to not worry. You know, it's like, I could, I could go exegete Philippians 4. Give me four hours and a couple commentaries, and I can do something there. Teach me how to, like, give me a 17-year-old, and it's my job to teach them how to not worry anymore. That's a bit more work, would you agree? And I think that's why so many books, so many lectures, so many sermons end with this kind of, not a bad thing, but kind of vague emotional inspiration moment, which again is not a bad thing, rather than you notice, um, I'm teaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now, and one of my favorite, I feel like I'm just falling in love with Jesus as a teacher all over again, and he's constantly oscillating back and forth between this abstract concept 
about like how actually, you know, murder is rooted in this heart posture of anger and contempt for other people and you look down your nose and like he just has this really like kind of deep, profound insight in the human condition. And then he like shifts gears in every single little teaching and he has these little, small, practical kind of what about Bob baby steps if I'm dating myself there. But like these little, like little creative, small steps to move forward. So if you're there at the altar and somebody's upset with you, go sell your thing and go talk to them. Or, you know what I mean? It's like these little, small, or, or just go, you know, give money to the poor and don't tell anybody about it. Do it in secret. Like just these little, small, creative, little, anybody can do, I can't tackle the mountain tomorrow, but I can do this little thing. That is, I think, where so many, so much of our teaching and our preaching and leadership goes wrong is we don't actually talk about the how. And I think this is a key moment. Um, if we don't actually teach people how, to live the way of Jesus, then we're not going to get very far, especially if we just assume, as we could more so with an older generation, that a lot of the basics of following Jesus they already have down, and then you can kind of stick more with Bible theology, abstract thought. Again, not bad stuff. It's a both and. But I think now we're at a whole, from deconstruction out of, you know, uh, what was the first one? Pioneer was the second. What was the first one? Preparer. Preparer to pioneer. Like, we're like, think blank slate. I think you have to actually teach people, this is how you read your Bible. This is how you pray. This is how you go to church. This is how you live in community for longer than three weeks. This is like, you know what I mean? This is how you do money. Like we have to teach people, especially with the breakdown of the family, how to do this. So I think the need of the hour more than ever is to get back to, you know, spiritual formation. Um, if that is, is that language that's used much over here? So... Here's Willard's definition of that, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. So I just want to shift gears a little bit now for the second half of this time. I just want to make the point that one of the key ideas we need to get as we're talking about this cultural moment, talking about our call to not only evangelize but to make disciples, which means we, I need to teach the how, not just the why and the what. One of the things that's easy to forget is that spiritual formation isn't um, a Christian thing, it's a human thing, meaning we all have a spirit, and the spirit just departed from my <laughs> teaching. We all have, wow, and continues to. Um, we all have a spirit, and, uh, but like the Western church, I just keep going. Um, we, (laughs) sorry, um, we, we all have a spirit and we're all being formed, right? Whether we follow Jesus or not to be human is to be dynamic, not static. We're all being formed. We're all being shaped. We're all disciples of somebody or something. The people in your church, if you're a church leader, they're, they're being, whether you're discipling them or not, they are being discipled. Um, they just might be being discipled by Beyonce or by a professor at school or by Apple or whatever. Um, they're being form- what I mean by that is they are being formed into a very specific kind of man or woman, into a very specific kind of life. So what, we, what I've spent the last basically three years of my life reading, researching, and the question I've been asking is, right, how does this actually work? How do people change? How are people 
formed. Um, again, I grew up in the church, and so I have it's just that's my vantage point, for better or for worse. And what I want to do just really quickly is walk you through our spiritual formation paradigm. I'm not going to teach on this because I'm going to teach on it tomorrow if you're around, so I'll talk in depth about this. But I always talk about unintentional spiritual formation before I talk about intentional spiritual formation, meaning just like you wake up in the morning and you live. Um, so let me see how this works. Boom. So uh, this is my little working paradigm. This is my summary and synthesis of everything I picked up from the New Testament all the way down to um, kind of all the recent work in psychology, which has been really helpful. Basically, this is my little framework. So we're formed, first off, I'm not going to teach through this until tomorrow, so it'll just raise questions. But we're formed by the stories that we believe, or if you want to call that your thought life, or you want to call that your worldview. We're, we're narrative animals. We live out of a story. Secularism is a story. The way of Jesus, the gospel is a story. Materialism is a story. Um, all, these are all stories about what it means to be human. And we're very, we're formed by our stories. Um, secondly, we're formed by our habits. This is where spiritual disciplines like Christian theology, philosophy, and psychology are all in like total agreement that the things we do do something to us. And, and they shape us like we are a little more than the cumulative effect of our daily, weekly habits. And the thing about habits, why they're so key, is they, in the moment they feel like they're not really doing anything, but they are doing something to you. And in particular, they're shaping your loves and your longings. And this is like a key thing. I love some if you've read some of Jamie K. Smith's work in this area. His whole point about discipleship is more about curating the love of your heart than it is about anything else. And you do that for the most part through your habits or what followers of Jesus have called spiritual disciplines or what I think Jesus would have called the practices. Third is reformed by our relationships. We become like the people that we hang out with for better or for worse. Our people that we pastor are being shaped by their coworker, by their family of origin more than anything, by their neighborhood, by their digital pseudo community. And then all of this happens in an environment which is always twofold in the digital age. So one, we all have, in the sense, we all live in the same world. It's, it's called the internet, um, or it's called Instagram, or it's called Apple, or whatever. We all live in the same world together, which is why there's so much similarity. Now it's why Mark can travel to Portland and I can travel here. And there's a couple weird, like, what does that mean, um, moments, or that's not our story. But for the most part, there's all of this shared experience, why hipsters look exactly the, you can't call them that anymore, post-hipsters, whatever, look, <laughs> look exactly the same everywhere you go in the world. They're all wearing Nikes, and they're, they're you know, kind of raw denim, and they're a Carhartt beanie. Like, everywhere you go, it's the same thing, because the world is getting bigger, it's also getting smaller. But then each city is its own, like the city I live in, and my guess is Melbourne, is a formation machine. It has a very specific, it has an agenda, um, volitional or not, it has a very clear idea of who it wants me to become or not become. And, I, and this is why you can always tell the difference between somebody who's new to your city and from another cultural context or whatever. So I live right in the city, similar to here, it's like very people bicycle everywhere, it's hyper, hyper environment, uh, like in, in environmentally conscious, it's like Pacific Northwest, green, like very anti-oil and all that kind of stuff. So this guy just moved in recently and moved in with this giant, it's all street parking, you know, and for the most part, some driveways, but mostly street parking. This guy just moved in with this giant black Ford truck, like just huge, and it's all, in America we call it murdered out. Do you have that phrase here? It's a Southern California thing where they like do the whole, they paint the whole thing in flat black and then like tint the windows and then paint the wheels all flat black or whatever. And it has this giant like skateboarding sticker on the side. I would bet you $500 that guy is from Riverside, California, like anything. That dude is from like Inland Empire. If you've ever been to California, like... 
He is, it's so not Portland. And just to see him try to parallel park this thing <laughs> in, a, in a neighborhood full of like hybrids with a coexist bumper sticker on the back and the little, you know, Mercedes smart cars and the rest of us on our bicycles, just in these neighbors just glaring. I mean, just like, you think he was torturing a cat or something <laughs> as he was trying to park. I guarantee you that if this guy stays in Portland, like give him three years and it'll be a Subaru or it'll be a bicycle, or it'll be a hybrid. Like, he'll lose the truck. You can tell, oh, that guy's new. And, like, you look around a license plate, oh, yeah, California, he's new. So, like, my guess, that I'm sure that breaks down cultural commentary. But my guess is it's the same here. Like, you can tell we're formed. This doesn't happen at once. It happens, my point is, over time, even through a lifetime, and then through experiences. So I won't teach on this until tomorrow. All I want to make the point here is that all you have to do to be shaped this way is just wake up in the morning and get out of bed. Read the news, commute to work, see a billboard, talk to your boss. You are becoming somebody. The question that we have to ask, that our people have to ask, we have to help our people ask, is who or what are we becoming? So whatever our discipleship mode is in this kind of a cultural moment, it has to offset all of this. We're not starting with a blank slate. We don't get to start from zero. That's not an option. We start with people who every single day are being formed by a tidal wave of culture and all the cultural cross-currents. So we have to offset all of this. So the question, of course, is how? And basically what I want to leave you with today, um, there, I do have another paradigm I'll get to tomorrow for like on the other side, the how, but I just want to leave you with two like, thoughts to kind of think through, wrestle through. And these are two of the main thoughts that I've been thinking through and wrestling through. I think there are a lot of myths and misconceptions in the church. And maybe this is an American phenomenon, but I pick it up all over England, all over. I pick it up kind of throughout the Western world. There are two myths and misconceptions about how people are like, what counterformation is or what we would call discipleship or apprenticeship to Jesus is. So here's my two little myths, and I just want to lay this at you. You don't have to agree with me at all, but just if nothing else, I want to get you thinking. First is the myth that all you need to do is know your Bible. Um, I think I have that up there. Yeah, all you need to know is the Bible. So this is, if you grew up, if you, I grew up in kind of the evangelical, non-denominational vein of the church. If you grew up in that, or if you grew up in the Reformed tradition, or a more intellectual expression of church, or a Bible kind of focused church, this is kind of the working theory of spiritual formation. Like, just teach the Bible, memorize the Bible, study the Bible, talk about the Bible, and then people will change. And when I say myth, I don't think that's untrue. I think it's a half-truth. I think it's a starting place on an ending place. So, of course, the backstory there is, you know, Protestant Reformation. You have Luther in Germany. His working theory of what he called sanctification, which is what we kind of call spiritual formation now, um, has really shaped the Western church as a whole. And his theory was basically twofold. So for Luther, if I'm reading him right, his idea of how, if you were to ask Luther, how do people change? My interpretation is he would basically say, one, through the preaching of the gospel, which for him was the sermon. So it's a combination of kind of what we call evangelism and Bible teaching. And two, through the sacraments, because he was still essentially Catholic in his view of communion. Evangelicalism came along and basically, unless if you're Anglican, ditched the sacraments. Um, Meaning like there's a very low view, right or wrong, Theologically, there's just a very low view for most evangelicals of communion. Most evangelical churches in America at least don't even take communion on more than a, you know, once a quarter or once a month kind of basis when it used to be the center of gravity. Right or wrong, I'm not even getting into that. Just saying what you're left with at that point is basically the sermon. And so there are a lot of church models. Um, again, this is less true of the charismatic church, but 
uh, the non-charismatic church in particular, where basically every, like the center of gravity of not just the Sunday gathering, but of the church itself is the sermon, and of spiritual formation is the sermon. And the theory is just hear really good, Jesus-centered, Bible-focused, preaching and teaching, and you'll change. The problem is I grew up in those churches. It had like every single Sunday, open your Bible, take notes, great teaching, great preaching, tons of talk about Jesus. And I grew up in them. And I can tell you right now, there are whole heaps of people who have been in fantastic churches hearing fantastic Bible teaching for 30 years and have not been transformed. Uh, changed a little bit, sure. Moved in the right direction, yes. But if we set Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, as the bar, like that's the end goal, we're, we're not even like getting close. Is that a... Please. Oh, so please, correct, confirm, correct. Yep. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yes. Yeah, I love his view, high view of scripture. Beautiful. No, yeah, no, thank you for that. Thank you. Um, You know more than I do. Thank you. That's great. I think either way, what I know we're on firm ground in is Luther is working up to the Enlightenment. And of course, the Enlightenment, you have Descartes and so many others. I think, therefore, I am. Human beings are brains on legs. You have this whole shift in anthropology and psychology to this idea that human beings are basically brains that walk around. And if that theory of human personality were true, then the, like the working theory is, well, just information in equals transformation. Now, of course, and this is what our whole educational system is based on to this day. It's what our church system is based on. It's what most discipleship systems are based on. But we all know it's not true. Like, all I would have to do is like, read a book on sugar and why it's bad for me, and I would never have another cookie, you know? Or, or read a book on like, why lust is not healthy and I would never lust again. If, it was, if all we're dealing with was like a mental thing, but obviously we're so much more, we're human beings. Um, and so I love that little idea of you, know, you can't think your way to Christ-likeness because the way of Jesus is a way of life. So I have a high, high value for the life of the mind, for Bible, for teaching. Like this is what I do. So I'm, please don't read this as negativity on that. My negativity is church cultures where that's all you do. And what I found is that even in the most anti-intellectual church cultures, and I was in a Pentecostal church for about five years, that was like full-on anti-intellectual. Like if you went to college, it was like, you keep that a secret kind of a thing, you know? Because you didn't actually have faith in Jesus or whatever. But still, even in those kind of, and I don't know if you have that here or not, but even in those kind of cultural contexts, you find that most of the approach to discipleship is purely intellectual. And by intellectual, I don't mean heady or cerebral. I mean it's information-based. So it's come to this Bible study on Thursday morning. You really want to go deeper? Joe will take you through this book of the Bible or basic doctrines of the thing Thursday morning. Again, these are great things. But that is a solely intellectual, and by that I mean information approach to discipleship. But information alone does not yield transformation. You can put all of the right information into somebody. Again, it's key. I'll talk about more of that later. It's, a, it's the beginning point. But if you never get past there, you'll never see disciples of Jesus made. 
So that, I think, is a good myth that, especially if you grew up in a church tradition like I did, you need to wrestle with. On the other, some of you are like, no, we're charismatic. We have the Holy Spirit. We don't, right? we don't even have sermons anymore. We just, whatever. Well, I have a myth for you, too. Um, so the other myth, I think, is that you don't need to do anything. It's all God. And whether this is Keswick Convention in England forever ago, or a charismatic church now, or a Pentecostal tradition, or a Bethel-shaped church, or whatever, um, and again, not to slam on any of these. I think there's, just like the last one, there's truth in this. But the ba- for a lot of people, the working, I think, theory of spiritual formation is encounter, emotional encounter-based. So, like, uh, we're a charismatic church, so a lot of, like, I revel- I'm in those circles more and more lately, and a lot of people you talk to, and the th- working theory is basically come to church, have an encounter with God, have an emotional experience, which, again, I'm all for that, and that, that alone is basically how you are transformed. It's one of the reasons that some of the charismatic churches have higher church attendance, which is good, because their work in theory is you come to church and you encounter God and you're transformed. Again, I believe in this, but if you start to pay closer, like you always, there's a difference when I talk to first-generation charismatics versus second-generation charismatics. First-generation charismatics, you talk to them about this, you're like, well, that's how everybody's changed, and they look at you confused. Second-generation, they're like, tell me about it. Because what you find when you're around that kind of a tradition, and again, I'm insider critique here, is that usually when people tell stories about encounter with God, they tell stories about healing and freedom, not stories about formation. So normally it's a story like, I was addicted to this, somebody prayed for me, I had this encounter at a retreat with God, and I've never you know, had another drink of alcohol since. Or I like, had this deep father wound, I was bitter and angry at my dad, and I was released in this moment. Or we just had a story where a gal was having daily migraines, prayed for her, inner healing prayer, came out that her father had committed suicide when she was, I think, 13, and right before he killed himself, he blamed her and her mother and said, I'm doing this because of you. Immediately migraines started. Now she's late 20s or whatever and has had migraines daily since, right? So prayed for her, hasn't had a migraine since, like total healing of God over life. Those stories are beautiful. You rarely hear stories like, you know, I was such, I was just really impatient, and I was always kind of rude and curt and mean to people and in a rush, and somebody prayed for me, and I'm just the most patient person ever now. I was really irresponsible, and I just couldn't get my act together. I was undisciplined. I was watching Netflix all the time and, you know, checking social media instead of reading my Bible in the morning. I was just all over, and then somebody prayed for me. I had this encounter with God, and now I'm just, it's 5 a.m., I'm up, and it's an hour of prayer and fasting, and then I go to the gym, then I eat celery and drink water, <laughs> and then I'm into the office like I just don't, that's an exaggeration but I just I don't hear those stories now I'm sure God could do that I'm, this is, my intent here is not to limit your view of the Holy Spirit or lower your view of the Holy Spirit I have a very high very robust view of both the Holy Spirit and of emotional encounter but I think emotional encounters rarely produce lasting change unless if they are backed up by a change in lifestyle and once again, it's a both and here. In the same way that Bible teaching is the beginning, not the end, I think that emotional encounter with God, I'm all for it. It's a beginning, not an end. And emotional encounter alone does not yield transformation. So these are two myths that I hear all the time on a regular basis in church. I'm about out of time. Um, so how do we move forward? Well, you come tomorrow, and I'll talk about this. <laughs> I don't have time to talk about it right now. Uh, this is counterformation in place of the stories we believe is teaching, in place of our habits is practice or the spiritual disciplines, in place of relationships is community, in place of our environment is above all life in the Holy Spirit. The most important thing there is is to abide in the vine. Same thing, this happens over time and in particular through hardship. 
Um, all that to say, we'll talk more about this tomorrow. Um, as usual, I talk too long. I think a good question to leave you with is in what ways are these myths and misconceptions working their way into your church or into your leadership? When you think about a holistic approach to discipleship, most of you, and I'll talk about this tomorrow if you're around, but most of you are probably strong in one or two of these, myself included. I remember when I first started working this out, I realized, oh, we're really strong in teaching. I don't need to do more of that and more, like, just keep on. Um, we were really strong in the things of the Holy Spirit. Practice was basically non-existence in our, church, in our church model. Basically, the spiritual disciplines, in my life they were, but in our church model, the way our church was set up, it was basically assumed rather than taught on. The how aspect of it was almost non-existent. Community in a lot of large churches, and depending on how you define that, is almost non-existent. So we've basically rebuilt our whole church. What we're doing, just quickly, is um, we've rebuilt it around spiritual formation, around discipleship. We still have a Sunday gathering, still have a sermon, worship. We're more involved in the things of the Spirit than ever before. But every three months, we take on a practice. Um, So it's not all spiritual disciplines, also some emotionally healthy spirituality stuff, if you're familiar with that material. And then a list of about 10 kind of mission or ministry practices, whether that's healing the sick or prophesying or doing justice or evangelism. And basically every three months, we have this kind of master sheet we're working through over the five years. Every three months, we take on a practice. I teach on a, on a Sunday for a couple weeks to you know, a month or two. And then we write up a practice-based curriculum, for lack of a better word. We don't call it that. We write up a practice that our home communities work through. So for three months, they're basically hearing about for a good chunk of that and then practicing silence and solitude or dealing with past, family of origin, father wounds, getting healing, that kind of stuff. Um, we're doing fasting uh, just up is next up on the docket. So just teaching people like how to obey what Jesus has commanded. That's what I'm trying to figure out. I think it's a great, however you do it, that's a question we all have to ask. Are we just teaching people or are we te- the what or are we teaching people the how? And where are we like living into myths and misconceptions? Just have an encounter or just know the Bible better without the holistic approach to discipleship. And if that sounds overwhelming, let me leave you with one encouraging thought. One, that's all you get for the day. Um, One, this is so much fun to be with you, and I can't wait to learn more through the day from you guys as well. But um, one of the things that I'm passionate about, I've spent so many years now reading all the discipleship literature. One of the things that I think is really weird about the literature that you don't see in the New Testament is that disciple is never used once as a verb anywhere in the New Testament. So we talk about discipling somebody. You notice the New Testament writers don't talk about that. Paul doesn't talk about discipling Timothy. Jesus doesn't even talk about discipling Peter. And uh, you have two times where there's a verb before it, make disciples, the famous line in Matthew 28. And that's actually, even that's an oddity. And then you have one line in Acts, I think chapter 6, where you read, they made disciples. Everywhere else, it's just a noun. It's something that people are or are not. The disciples did this, the disciples did that. And I think that's more than semantics. I I think there's something deeper there. I think when you think about disciple as a verb, it can be overwhelming as a church leader because it puts the onus of responsibility for people to be transformed on who? On you. And so this is where, like, you, I don't know if you have this here, what we, I'll have 20-somethings come to me bitter and say, my church never discipled me. My pastor never did. And they're angry about it. Some of it is like you climb into the story, you're like, oh, that's lame. A lot of it is like, no, they expected somebody to sit down with them twice a week and make them into Jesus of Nazareth II. 
and, and the working model, you know, was of discipleship. Discipling is basically meet with this older person once a week and go through a book, and do, which is, again, a great thing. I don't think that's a paradigm for transformation. Great beginning point, great piece of a puzzle, not the whole thing. If you think of disciple as a noun, as it is in the New Testament, that's potentially a game changer because it puts the onus of responsibility to be transformed, to change and grow and mature on Jesus and on the person in front of you. And I think one of the problems with the discipleship model is often we confuse leadership development with discipleship. So what Jesus did with the 12, I would not call that discipleship. I call that leadership development. Jesus had dozens, if not hundreds, of disciples who weren't in the 12 that were not following him around, that weren't passing out bread at the feeding of the 5,000, that weren't at least 70 that he full-on sent out. He had women in that list, which no rabbi had women disciples, female disciples. So there's more going on. And I think leadership development is awesome. And what Jesus does with the 12 is a great template for that. But when that somehow gets applied to discipleship, often we forget that the goal of discipleship is not to become more like Mark or whoever is discipling you. The goal is to become more like Jesus. So, like, if you're discipling somebody, if you want to use that language, you're not Jesus, you're Peter. I just want to make that clear. You're Paul and Timothy, or Peter and, you know, Mark or whoever. You're not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. Let's keep him there, and let's keep him as the rabbi and all of us as the apprentice. Some of us might be master apprentices that are a little farther down that path of transformation. Others are neophytes and new to it. Jesus is the rabbi. We're not the rabbi. And we're there to apprentice under him and to lead other people, follow me as I follow Christ, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So I do think there is a responsibility. Church leadership is so, it's like parenting. How many of you have parents or kids? I'm guessing a number of you. Parenting is so, my kids are getting older now and it's just so scary. My kids are doing great, but parenting is terrifying. Because it's like you have, it's, this whole, it's the worst of both worlds in that you have all responsibility for how your kids turn out. Like, you can't be like, well, my kid turned out terrible. It's, he has free will. Like, well, yeah, but you're his parent. You have responsibility. But you don't have control. He or she does have free will. And there's no formula. There are, I think, better systems of parenting than others. Some parents are really lacking wisdom in some areas, and others have some great wisdom. But we all know, like, if there was a magic formula for how to make the perfect kid, you could do everything right, and your child could still go sideways. So, right? As a general rule... Good ways of raising kids tend to raise better kids. Train up, as a general rule, train up a child in the way they should go. But that's as a general rule. It's not a formula. There's no guarantee. So as a parent, you have this like, do you ever feel this? It's like the worst of both worlds. Like I'm responsible for how this child, be- who they do or don't become, but yet I can't control them. All I have is, I mean, I can a little bit, but then they get bigger and I can't at all, you know? And I think pastoring is that there's, you just have to accept that and do your best. I think church leadership is a little bit the same where, we have responsibility. We can't just say, well, it's your job to become like Jesus. No, we have a responsibility. We're supposed to be, I think that's why Paul's primary metaphor for leadership is parenting. And I think that needs to be recaptured in our cultural moment with the breakdown of the family. We have responsibility, but we're not in control. All we have is invitation. Everything we have is invitational. We can't override people's freedom. Jesus won't override their freedom. Why should we? Jesus won't make them against their own free will or volition, follow him. And everything Jesus did was invitational. Come, take up your cross, follow me. If you want, here's how you do it. Da, 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 da. If you don't, okay, go in peace. And in this, it's hard to lead people that way, huh? And especially hard for my personality. Um, I've had, I'm learning this the hard way. Everything I do has to be by example and by invitation. Look at my life, listen to what I say. This is my best shot at how you follow Jesus. I had lunch uh, with a hero of mine recently, 
pastor down in California who had just was a writer, somebody I really look up to. And uh, we had this chat, and he had this great little line. He was talking about Dallas Willard's definition of the kingdom as like how we all have our own little kingdom, starting with our mind and our body. We all have a range of our effective will that God has put, and God like, will respect our freedom. And he had this great little line after leading the church for decades, and he said, it's very hard to lead people without overriding their kingdoms. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. And so, all that to say, I think there's a freedom here for you. Like, you can't control. All you can do is live by example. You follow the way of Jesus. Teach people how to do it if they want, and then invite them in. And then at the end of the day, they have their kingdom. You have your kingdom, and God's kingdom will hopefully come.